Wowzers, and welcome to another episode of On the Way Home. I'm your host, Michael Braithwaite, and I have the great fortune of being part of the team at Blue Door. Uh, Blue Door's organization for the past 41 years has been supporting our most vulnerable across the top of the GTA in uh, York, Durham, and Peel regions, providing them with all sorts of different housing needs, healthcare needs, and supporting them with finding meaningful and well-paying employment. If you want to check out the cool work that we do, go to bluedoor.ca and you'll find it all about uh, the work that myself and the team are up to. We do this in partnership with the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Hey, what don't they do is probably easier than saying what they do do, but they really pull together a collective voice for our country around uh, housing policy or different things happening uh, where we could help make change happen fast. They've done that uh, over the years and, and had huge impact on help shaping. And in fact, even I, I would give them credit for helping to shape and push forward uh, the Liberal government in 2015, having a, a national strategy, uh, them and in the NCHRA and others. But they do great advocacy work as well. They do a lot of training. Um, if you want to become a Built for Zero community, and I'm sure you do, um, and, and much, much more, uh, they have a huge conference. By the time we air this, the conference will probably be passed, but they do a conference every fall where they bring together the best, the brightest across the country. Uh, it's incredible. You need to be there. You want to be there. It's interesting. And it really brings together people to share ideas uh, and move the needle on ending homelessness across Canada and around the world. Check them out at caeh.ca. Hey, I have an incredible guest for you today, and even more incredible because we had her on once, uh, and then we went to put it out, and you know what? Technical difficulties. And I'm like, oh, man, because we need to hear from her. And it's such a, uh, she is such an incredible uh, intellectual person uh, and, and a big part, I think, of uh, pushing good policy forward. Uh, we have Carolyn uh, Wisman with us. And um, Carolyn, I hope you forgive me if I butchered your, your last name. Um, but we have a great conversation, just a wonderful person. She is a, a, a multiple-time author, advocate, uh, housing policy expert, uh, has had a bunch of different careers um, as her PhD, just an incredible, incredible person and has had a lot of great experience, which she's brought to the sector, was in Australia for a long time, uh, last couple of years, came back to Canada. And man, what great timing to have her here while we're in the midst of this housing challenge that we have in our country. You see me holding my uh, stress hammer here, right, uh, around building. Um, but it's great to have Carolyn back. And, and, and since then, I've seen her all over the place. Every time uh, government can uh, launches a new policy or, or there's discussion around it, um, she's one of the go-to people that they go to to say, you know, are we on the right track? She's very optimistic, points out the great things that are happening, but also shares uh, some of the other things that can be done. We have such a great conversation. We talk about her book. Uh, we talk about her journey. We talk about the heart project, heart project that she was working on, not to do with fiscal heart, H-A-R-T uh, um, out of UBC. And some of the pieces that came out of that, uh, we talk about um, a research report she did for uh, OFHA that should be released at uh, the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness Conference, and more around that. And she shares some of the findings there. Uh, we have just general conversation too around, you know, the importance of income supports and, and not just supply and why definitions matter when it comes to affordable housing or when it comes to saying what kind of homes do we actually need when we say. We need 3.5 um, million homes by 2032. 
Let's break that down. What kind of homes do we need? It's not all of one type uh, and much, much more. It is an incredible conversation from a brilliant individual. You don't want to miss it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Let's go to that conversation. Now. I am thrilled. Now, I should tell viewers that because of uh, my incompetence or you know, technical difficulties, this is the second time we've done this, and that just means it's only going to get better because Caroline was awesome the first time we did it. But thanks so much for your being gracious and coming back to do this again. Because it's great to see you again, Michael. No problem. <laughs> thank you. No, you know what? It was. Uh, listen, folks, it was an awesome podcast. So I was so disappointed, right? And uh, so we're going to do that. We're going to duplicate that and more today. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to ask you that question, and you've had practice now. No pressure. And that is, what does home mean to you? Well, you may remember, Michael, that um, I'm working on a book about uh, housing policy and that I cited from the book because the first chapter is called What is Home? So um, I uh, would say that home is a place where you can experience joy and comfort with friends and family or a equal refuge and solitude. Your belongings surround you at home. You're happy to return there because your home is the result of a full choice of where, how, and with whom to live. Um, home is where you partake in culture, even if it's only a favorite TV show after a long day, um, where you can cook an old family recipe or try a new ingredient, where you can sleep comfortably and safely, where you can be your best self. Uh, home is part of a supportive and welcoming community, even if you don't own it, and most Canadian households still don't own their homes outright, they either play, pay landlords or a bank, mortgage lenders, um, you feel like you belong. Um, home isn't reliant on contingent charity. You don't earn it by being sober or sane or reflecting majority values. That's what I understand by the term dignity. Your home is yours because everyone deserves a home full stop. You know what? If, if there was a prize for best answer of all time, that would be it. Uh, and listen, folks, I mean, not, that, that's just a, a smidgen. We've got a whole chapter, so we're going to talk about the book as well. But let's talk about your journey. Uh, it, I was reading your bio and you talked about uh, being in the midst of a third career. Maybe you could walk us through a bit of that journey. Sure, Michael. In my first career, uh, after I finished my master's at University of Toronto, uh, I was a very lucky person. My master's thesis was on a feminist critique of crime prevention policy, and it happened that the city of Toronto was really interested in developing policy around violence prevention from a gender perspective. So I thumped my thesis on the uh, table during my um, uh, interview and said, I'd love to turn theory into reality. And oddly enough, they hired me. So for 10 years, I worked for the city of uh, Toronto, developing integrated policy around violence prevention. And even at that point, I was really interested in the links between violence and home, the fact that the lack of affordable housing is often a constraint for women and children seeking to escape violent relationships. Um, and uh, it was a very satisfying 10 years. Um, I had been doing some teaching on the side and at a certain point I decided I needed to finish my PhD or never continue in a research career. So I um, uh, did a PhD at McMaster University with the wonderful Richard Harris, a housing historian and my um, 
thesis was on the uh, history of uh, housing policy with a focus on case study of a neighborhood called Parkdale in Toronto. Coming out of that PhD, I got offered a teaching job, uh, teaching urban planning at the University of Melbourne in Australia. So I spent the next 16 years teaching urban planning, doing research on urban planning and um, uh, developing a partnership approach towards housing policy in Melbourne, Australia. Most recently, uh, I returned to Canada for um, mostly for family reasons. And um, also I was offered early retirement from the University of Melbourne. And I've been working as a freelance housing policy consultant, although a lot of my work has been based actually at UBC, although I'm living in Ottawa now, <coughs> excuse me, um, doing, uh, um, developing uh, policy tools like need, housing need assessment, um, using government land for uh, non-market and affordable housing, and also looking at how property acquisitions can help in the hemorrhage of um, uh, affordable rental housing. Wow, and I have to say, you've come back with a bang. I mean, if you look at the voices I, lo I look to quite often across this nation uh, when some pol new policy drops or something happens, uh, you know, it's, it's yourself, it's Tyler Meredith, um, many of the guests that we've had on the show. And so I was so pumped to have you here. So you, you leave for 16 years, you came back to a very different Canada, I believe. Uh, and let's stick to, you know, to the housing kind of uh, poverty reduction sector. How was that? Like, what did you see when you came back versus when you left? And was it a shock or did you, you kind of know? Well, even in the 1990s, there were warning signs with the federal government's withdrawal from non-market housing, the collapse of non-market housing and the growth of homelessness. So um, people I consider friends like uh, David Halchansky, Michael Shapcott, they were already raising the alarm bells in the 1990s. It was a very similar situation when I moved to Australia. There was a withdrawal from social housing, uh, quite conservative um, um, federal government. Uh, so I wasn't too surprised, and also I did comparative research. So I wasn't too surprised when I returned to Canada. I must admit that, um, <coughs> excuse me, looking over the Pacific, as I did um, when uh, uh, the current government, uh, federal government was elected, and I heard there was going to be $120 billion on uh, infrastructure, which had been neglected, and uh, $40 billion on housing, and $40 uh, billion on uh, sustainable transport, and $40 billion on climate change adaptation. And it sounded as though the three would, were going to be dealt with together. So it looked really good. It looked like a good time to move to Ottawa, and it has been a good time to move to Ottawa, but I think the shining promise of uh, 2015 has gotten a little bit tarnished. Yeah, well, well said. Well said. I, think, I mean, we've, we've taken some good steps, but far from where we need to be. And I think even for people to understand, we've had a couple of guests from Australia on this podcast who have been wonderful and very similar with some of the challenges, even, and I did not realize until we had uh, Peter McMillan. Peter McMillan from, and he was talking about the north of Australia and the indigenous challenge around homelessness, very similar. They recently had a, a vote, which sadly 
uh, mm-hmm. did not go the way. And and I think people- It's been a terrible mean, couple of weeks, Michael, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 Human rights have not done well over the last fortnight. No, no, it has been, uh, as, as we speak, there's a lot going on in this world, not a lot positive. Um, but yeah, yeah. So with Australia, very similar, right? So I think a lot of the work you were doing in Australia absolutely could be applied here. I think so. The sort of partnership approach that we had with uh, local and and other levels of government, uh, nonprofit and private affordable housing developers and researchers worked really well in Australia. And I have to say that kind of model um, is is, um, uh, working in Canada. I feel like we're having a real impact with um, the tools that the Housing Assessment Resource Tools Project has uh, developed. So um, you know, I, I love to, uh, by the way, Tyler's, um, uh, your podcast with Tyler Meredith a couple of uh, weeks ago, I think there's a lot of good people out there with a lot of good ideas. And I think that there's sort of a, um, uh, burst of energy, uh, that's really been, um, you know, exacerbated, if you will, uh, by the fact that, Um, affordable housing has just become such a crisis and that it seems to be the number one issue in Canada right now. Yeah, it's so, you know, it's often the solutions that are brought forward, sometimes they're so simple in a sense in nature, like Tyler was talking about with using government land and how it, on the balance sheet, I'm, wow, you know, Uh, I have to think too of um, diversion in emergency housing where how do we not think that asking a set of questions before we say yes yes or no for someone entering a shelter would make such a giant difference and it barely it doesn't cost anything we just ask questions right and with better results and how do we not think of that 20 years ago but often the solutions are right in front of us and simple um we we just i I think get we make it too complicated moving forward um let's talk about the heart project let's talk about that and and there are three main tools. Let's talk about what they do and why they're important. I'd love to. So, um, again, these were some ideas that we tested out in Australia. One of the issues um, in Australia and Canada is that we, we've lost... We've lost muscle memory, and one of the bits of muscle memory that we've lost is what affordable housing really means. So, you know, it just makes no sense to tie affordable housing to market rent, particularly when market rent has gone up 50 uh, percent, even doubled in some cases in the last seven years. And, and that bears no resemblance to what um, low-income people, particularly very low-income people who are at risk of homelessness, can pay. So we have to return to the traditional idea of income-based definitions of affordability. So 30%, but not just 30% for the average income person. We use five um, categories, um, income categories. The first is very low income, and that's folks who are on a fixed income like welfare. And unfortunately, we have to set that at 20% of median income because welfare rates just haven't increased uh, with inflation since the 1990s. The second category we use is low income, so um, uh, between 20 and 50% of median income, and almost 80%, almost four in five of households in core housing need, and certainly all households who are homeless, are very low or low income. 
but also um, traditionally we've looked at moderate income households as well, like young professionals, for instance. If minimum, if if um, folks on minimum wage tend to be 50% of uh, income, uh, folks who are uh, personal support workers or teachers or um, uh, construction workers, uh, quite often, if uh, as a starting salary, are at 80% of median income. And um, increasingly in big cities, they certainly aren't able to afford home ownership and they find um, rental increasingly difficult, particularly if they're larger households, if they're, for instance, talking about having kids. Even median income households, even households that are from 80 to 120% of median income are finding it hard to afford adequate housing in big cities. Uh, higher income would be more than 120% and generally they can afford housing. Um, so by analyzing housing need, using those income uh, categories, using household sizes, but also looking at priority populations like indigenous households are far more likely to be homeless and in housing need. Um, the most likely household to be in uh, core housing need is a single mother family. Um, so a family led by a woman without a man in the scene. Um, and uh, so we, we analyze core housing need using um, census data, which comes out every five years and asks more or less the same questions. Um, that's one of our tools, a housing need assessment tool, and that's um, been picked up by a lot of um, uh, municipalities and also provincial governments, and the federal government is using it as a basis of a template uh, uh, for national core housing need that it's rolling out as part of the Housing Accelerator Fund. Our second tool is a land assessment, and that deals very much with the question of how you can use government land for non-market and affordable housing, as Tyler was talking about. That was a, understood as a big enabler from um, the post-war Home for Heroes uh, program that built uh, 1.5 million homes between 19, the early 1940s and 1960. Uh, it was also the basis of a lot of the nonprofit housing that was built in the um, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So we've mapped out in a bunch of participating cities, about 12, um, all government land, local government, provincial government, federal government um, land, uh, sort of ranked it by uh, whether it's appropriate for housing, um, what kind of um, services, public transport is ne or nearby. Uh, and um, uh, again, all three levels of government. In fact, in the past two days, I've met with um, uh, Mayor Chow from the city of uh, Toronto, um, the housing minister's office, and uh, the Ontario NDP, all of which are talking about how can we use government land for nonprofit housing. So it's it's very much in the zeitgeist right now. Um, it's returning. That muscle memory is returning. Our third tool is on acquiring uh, private housing that's at risk of losing affordability. So we know that there's an increasing, unfortunately, an increasing funnel into homelessness um, because of uh, rents that are going up very rapidly or uh, houses that are being torn down and redeveloped um, uh, by, uh, in many cases, large developers. So um, that tool is a little bit more 
looking at best practices. BC, Nova Scotia, both have acquisition uh, programs right now. Um, certainly a lot of people are advocating for the federal government to have acquisitions. Acquisitions was part of what helped create nonprofit housing, supportive housing in the 1970s and 1980s. So again, it's, it's retrieving that muscle memory. All these tools. I mean, I, listen, if they, they pick up one of the three, uh, we huge strides, but if they do all three, uh, you have hopes, high hopes for, that these will be adapted. I know you're meeting and sharing. What's the word on the street? Well, you know, it's really, one thing that constantly strikes me is the Heart Project is so recent. We only got funding from the CMHC uh, in um, uh, 2021, uh, we developed the tools over the next year. So by mid 2022, and here we are in 2023, and we see it getting into the zeitgeist. Uh, so many um, uh, governments are using it as a basis for their own needs assessment or advocacy groups are using it to, to cite our numbers. So I think the housing need assessment approach is uh, been really powerful. As I said, I think all levels of government are talking about using land. There's still a lot of constraints. There's a lot of um, uh, resistance to sort of a social return on investment approach towards government land. The notion that you can sell it to get more money for public transport in the case of, um, you know, some transit agencies like uh, Ontario's Metrolinks. Uh, the idea that you uh, need to sell it in order to fund education in the case of school boards. You know, there's a lot of resistance to actually using government land for public good purposes instead of for a quick profit. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of take up and interest in our land assessment tool. As for the acquisitions tool, look. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. The Canadian Housing and Renewal Association, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, everyone is saying it's much cheaper and much faster in many cases to reuse buildings, particularly, um, you know, there's a glut of office buildings and, and there's been really interesting work in Calgary on that. Um, there is uh, There are rent strikes going on all over the place because people are losing affordable rentals. So I think that the time has come for the federal government to have an acquisition strategy. Again, there's a, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven and no one wants to die, Michael. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of reluctance at the federal level to either provide direct grants, um, because that'll increase debt, I suppose, or to provide the kind of long-term low-rate financing, which was sort of the secret sauce with um, social housing in the 70s and the 80s. Um, but it does take 
low rate, long-term financing and or grants to create housing. And we've seen that with the most successful initiative of the National Housing Strategy, which is a rapid housing initiative, where if you provide the funding, the municipalities will provide the land and hopefully the provinces will provide the services and you can actually start to um, address homelessness through a housing first strategy. Yeah, you know, there's so much to unpack there. You mentioned the 1.5 million homes from 1940s to the 60s, 20 years. Our government right now is saying we need over 3 million homes uh, in less than 10 years to build it. We are far from that. So steep hill to climb um, with, with what we're doing. Um, and you're right, like the acquisition piece has to happen. I mean, we always hear supply, supply, supply. But the, the reality is we've got crumbling infrastructure and we're losing. I've heard everything from every new build we do. We're losing 15 to 7 to 9. But the fact is we're losing a lot more for every new build. And so if yeah. we don't acquire some of those, we're not going to ever get ahead of this, right? I mean, I think Steve Pomeroy talks about pouring water into a bathtub without putting the plug in. Yeah, it's it's a pretty basic aspect of affordable supply that you have to address the housing that's being lost because um, there hasn't been enough money to repair it properly or because um, there's uh, very steep rent increases or because either small scale or large scale investors are evicting people. Um, you know, all of those things have made um, rental housing a lot more insecure, even more of a second class choice. But the fact is that young people these days simply can't afford first time home ownership unless they are um, generationally fortunate enough to have the bank of mom and dad. Absolutely. I know. Uh... It's speaking with Lalani Farah over time, like she talks about these big companies, uh, I think it's, it's a BlackRock or that, and these huge conglomerates that own massive percentages of the world's real estate, how that, that controls it and changes things too. I mean, it's, it's a, a scary place. Now, you are so busy. You're doing so much. Somewhere in there, you found the time to write a book, to write a novel, to add that to it. It's called uh, How to Home. Fixing Canada's Housing Crisis. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, what inspired the book uh, and what, what it's about, what's in it. Well, before I go any further, this is going to be my third book with UBC oh. Press and their, in point wow. on, uh, their, their imprint on Point Press. And one thing that um, the uh, editors have said to me in a very nice way is you're really good at writing books and you're terrible at writing titles. So it, the final title may not be How to Home. I like How to Home. Uh, I've heard some feedback that sounds like, you know, home repair or something like that. Um, uh, you know, it's like how to, how to use a hammer and nails, which isn't what this is about. I, I just want to put that caution out there that um, they're very good at giving snazzy titles to my books. Okay. Um, so the idea behind How to Home, I'll call it How to Home, is that everybody is very curious all of a sudden about housing policy and some basic questions like, you know, what is a home? Uh, who's in charge? Uh, who pays for what? Uh, you know, can we even talk about ending homelessness? 
And this is sort of a guide for the perplexed. I'm, I'm trying to write it not as an academic book. Um, uh, it isn't very heavy on theory or anything like that. It's just sort of, well, you know, here, here are some problems. Here are how some other places have dealt with it or how Canada's dealt with it in the past. And here are some ideas for improvement. So it covers everything from... Um, some of the mechanisms to prevent and address homelessness, like housing. What, what is housing first? You know, uh, where has it worked? How do we know how to do it? Uh, what would it cost? All of that sort of thing. To um, some of the questions around uh, zoning and uh, increasing the amount of well-located affordable housing. And it is, it, it, I genuinely feel it's not um, a right or left issue. It's a question of can we learn from uh, evidence about what's worked in before, what's worked in other places. Um, there's no magic bullet. Uh, just, just kind of making it, breaking it down into the kind of chunks that make it seem manageable. Because as you said earlier, Michael, if you talk about the need for 5.8 million homes by 2030, people just kind of go, oh, uh, seems impossible. But Canada is one of the richest countries in the world. The idea of building 6 million homes, well, you know, Sweden built 1 million homes for 6.5 million people between 65 and 74. Here's how they did it. Here's what they learned. Um, that uh, in con current Canadian population equivalents would be 6 million homes. It's not impossible. Singapore, when it got independence from the British Empire, was dealing with a huge housing backlog. How did they do it? How did they turn into one of the richest countries in Asia? You know, it was on the backs of a really excellent housing need assessment and housing policy that flew out of it, you know? Um, so it's it's fixable. I think the main message of the book is it's fixable. I love it. I love, well, it's, it's hopeful, right? And I think uh, many people, as you said at the very beginning, are curious of, like, help me understand. And this book does exactly that. It kind of helps you understand some of the pieces of what's what's at play and, and, and how we can do it. Now, the book's not out yet, right? You're saying it's... No, it's, no. Um, it's going to be out, I'd say, in May of next uh, year. You know, as, as I've learned, <laughs> this is about my sixth book. Um, uh, there is a long path where you have to, you know, tell stores that, this is coming down the pipes and, uh, you know, design it and edit it. And, and um, you know, I, I, you get spoiled when you're a consultant and you write a report. And then as I just did for the housing advocate and it appears a month later, you know, all looking pretty uh, and with all of the grammatical errors fixed. <laughs> but um, uh, writing a book is a slightly longer process and you have to be patient about it. And I have to say that patience isn't my number one virtue <laughs> my my neither it's so funny you say that i write a very small town like uh article uh, we call the series a road home and like you i my titles are always changed um but <laughs> here's one for you i wrote one just around around food 
housing being the answer around food insecurity, as most housing or food experts will tell you, or food insecurity experts will say, it's not more food, it's housing. But the article title for that one was Food for Thought. I thought that was pretty clever. I don't know. You know, and they didn't change that one. That was probably the first one. Congratulations. Um, they, <laughs> they, they, you know what? They, it's always like, wow, I sound a, I sound a lot better after uh, my team. Uh, works out, you yeah. know, the, the grammar pieces and everything. But awesome. Well, we look forward to that book. Let's talk about a more recent project. Uh, it's a report you did for OFHA. Yeah. What can I know it's not, it's not out. It might be by the time that this uh, podcast comes out. What can you share? It's very imminent. So um, about a year ago, the CMHC released a report. We've been talking a bit about it, Canada's housing supply challenges. And when it came out, it had this figure that everyone's been quoting about uh, 3.5 million new homes. But the housing advocate, whose job it is to monitor, monitor the national housing strategy, was asking a really good question, which is, well, what's the relationship with the National Housing Strategy Act, which talks about the progressive realization of the right to adequate housing? What's the relationship with the National Housing Strategy? Um, what are going to be the prices of these homes? Where, where are those homes going to be located? What, what are the needs in terms of the right supply? So she asked me to write a critique of that paper, like what's the relationship between that paper and um, other aspects of Canada's housing policy. And then um, it got expanded a little bit from um, uh, uh, as it went along, okay, what are other methods of looking at housing need? Can you come up with numbers? Um, you know, how would we be able to include homelessness or low-income housing, which is very purposely excluded by this report, which focuses on median income home ownership. So I ended up writing a report that comes up with not dissimilar numbers. I mean, there is an absolute uh, aggregate housing shortage. There's a um, purpose-built rental housing shortage. There's a um, affordable housing shortage. There's a real non-market housing shortage. I mean, you know, there is a housing shortage. Um, but as we've talked about already, there's there's a question of how can we stop affordable housing from being lost or torn down? How can we um, make sure that the people who need housing the most, homeless people, don't end up being forgotten. So this report is, um, uh, it's already been presented to government folks. Um, it's being released, if not at the CAEH conference. I think it, that's that's really the best place to launch it. And that's just in a few weeks uh, in early November in Halifax. I suspect that's where the launch will be, although I haven't had the final um, uh, uh, announcement of that. But there will be copies available by that conference in early November. Awesome. I, I look forward to that. It's so interesting what you say. I mean, <laughs> definitions matter. I think in Ontario, um, the Conservatives struck up a committee, I think, in 2021, and my friend Ian Underwood was on it. And I remember saying, it was, I think, the Affordable Housing Task Force. And she said, I, I got to tell you, like, it was it was wrongly named. And I think it was her and someone else said, it's just wrongly named. It should have been, because it was, it was about supply. It wasn't about affordable supply. Affordable wasn't really in the report, but it was about the supply. And that matters, right? And yeah. to your, not to put words in your mouth, but you're talking about what we say, 3.5 
like let's break that down into what that means and and you're right quite often and then you get to affordable affordable for who right if you look at cmac when you apply for funding usually it's affordable was defined as 80 percent of mid-market rent which is not very affordable for the clients that Bluedor, my organization work with for sure when your your you know uh income is 720 dollars a month um so yeah definitions and those pieces matter i think sometimes we, we get to stay away from the broad strokes um because but you mentioned a different number a while back we were talking about 3.5 and not to alarm our listeners but you mentioned over 5 million homes is that oh that's because the the report said 3.5 million additional homes oh, wow. over the 2.2 million that are projected for a total of 5.8 million homes <laughs> um so it's it's actually 5.8 million homes that need to be produced by 2030 uh which is coming up it's it's like seven years from now um and since that report was written last year two things have happened. One of them is that construction's really slowed down, um, partly because of a lack of skilled labor, partly because of interest rate rises. Um, And at the same time, um, uh, uh, immigration numbers have been increased by the federal government with seemingly very little thinking about what that means in terms of increased need for housing. So um, it's like, we need more homes, we're producing fewer homes. And as you say, you know, Ontario talked about affordable homes in the task force and then hasn't really been talking about affordable housing in the policy implementation. Certainly, you know, housing in green fields isn't going to meet the needs of your clients necessarily. So, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a mess, uh, and it's uh, as we discussed earlier. I'm a naturally optimistic person, and it's sometimes hard to keep up the optimism. Yeah, absolutely, it is right because a lot of compounding problems. I think there's there's a lot of reason I think to to be optimistic, and we have a new housing minister who's very keen. They've made some mm-hmm. quick announcements around G- GST uh, mm-hmm. and some other building announcements, which show uh, I think there's some hope around the following statement that more announcements will be made. I, I think the government can't really wait till an election or till the, but like this is now, and this might affect re-election. Most likely it's on almost everyone these days, affordability. It, certainly, uh, it's it seems like it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be the number one election issue. And I think it's going to be the number one election issue in the next um, series of provincial elections in a lot of municipal elections as well as a federal election. So absolutely, it seems like a time of rapid change. I very much look forward to hearing more about whether the Rapid Housing Initiative, which has been the most successful program in the national housing strategy, but which has been um, renewed on a year-by-year basis. It would be so great to get that as an ongoing program. Um, it would be so great to have just explicit support for non-market social housing, including supportive housing. Because, you know, to, in order to bring housing in for, let's say, three $400 a month, which is really what people on welfare or ODSP need, 
you're going to need to throw everything at it, like free land, yes, also grants, also low-cost financing, also, uh, you know, certainly no development charges or application fees or property taxes. So you need, plus ongoing housing benefits, you really have to throw everything at it to get, at, um, in order to end homelessness. I was talking to, I was at an event yesterday and I was talking with a gentleman a more conservative minded. And he said, you know, this whole, I can't believe they're considering Senate's taking a look at basic income. You know, that's just unattainable. Like, well, you know, our debts and how, how the heck can, uh, I said, you know, I, I understand your concerns. I said, but I don't really think we can have a full conversation around ending homelessness. If we don't talk about income supports, yeah. I mean, when you're, you're looking at, you see the numbers of a hundred thousand dollars a year household income to afford one-bedroom apartment in the greater Toronto area or in Vancouver. Um, and, and, you know, we have people that are, as you said, Ontario Works and ODSP, 720, 100, maybe 1,300 per month, uh, way below. The gap is so big. Um, you know, do, do you agree with that? Like, I think we really do have to open up the income conversation as well, just so people can even access the supply that's out there and available. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at this point, welfare... Uh, can't pay for ongoing operations of an older building, the rents that come out of, that you could pay if you're on social assistance, um, so, let alone any new construction. So you have to, you know, you're, you're, you know that you're taking on an operating subsidy. And we've seen in experiments in universal basic income that um, that money spent wisely. In fact, there's this beautiful natural experiment out there, which is um, CERB uh, un uh, under COVID. Um, in the 2016 census, there were 1.7 million households in core housing need. In 2021, there was 1.45, so 250,000 households were magically lifted from homeless, uh, from sorry, inadequate housing uh, between the 2016 and 2021 census. Well, you'll see that the federal government isn't saying it's because of the wonderful national housing strategy. They, all of the, the statistical analysis shows that there was a huge income, temporary income bump in um, the uh, lowest income folks at the first decile as it's called uh, and um, you know that was there when the data was collected for the census in 2020 um, it's gone now uh, for a while there people could just about make it and then CERB stopped and people were facing evictions you know so it, it's just it's as simple as that we saw one simple way to lift a lot of households from core housing need. Yeah, and also, I, I, if I, I, I think I'm correct in saying that if you talk to food banks, food bank usage was at its lowest yeah. because when people can afford housing, they can afford their food, yeah. right? Um, so, so yes, we have to have uh, that conversation and more. And to your, I'll tell you a little um, antidote about Blue Door right now. So we have a big piece of land, little house donated to us. We operated in that. We're trying to. You know, which is really irresponsible of us uh, in the work that we do to do nothing. So we have looked at we're going to knock that down and we're going to put up 14 sack townhomes, create a lot more housing. We've got, uh, we, you know, we've actually had a good, hopefully approved soon, MZO go through for this so we could do this. But the challenge around, and we're looking at about $8 million, so not a huge spend. But right now, federally, 
there are no options. Now, rapid housing came and went. For rapid housing, and I think a lot of housing, what they'll say to nonprofits is shovel ready. To be shovel ready, you have to put about you know seven hundred to a million, seven hundred thousand to a million dollars of your own money. And for nonprofits to do that and take that risk without guarantee of actually getting the funding, it's uh, it is you know a big hill to climb. Now we're committed to it. We're pushing forward. Uh, I think uh, the federal government at one point suggested fundraising to us when. We said, so, so how do we get this bill to support deep? And we're talking deeply affordable, too. It's going to take a lot of bake sales to solve homelessness. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, so this is the kind of when you talk about nonprofits trying to do their part. Yeah. But there's other things like land trusts that are helping that keep that supply in there. There's a lot of good things and a lot of things to be optimistic about. I think I heard, you know, we've solved. Uh, and I have to say this to people. Listen, in, inside of two years there was a COVID vaccine that normally takes about seven to nine. If we put our best people on this, if we have the resources and we have the political will, we can do mm-hmm. this. And we, we saw some of that during the pandemic where we house thousands of people immediately. The sector can move, mm-hmm. but it takes all of that and, and more. And it takes individuals like yourself helping us to create good policy to move forward. And we're so grateful for it. If people want to uh, see more of your work, find out more about what you're doing, uh, hire you maybe to do some work. Where could they go? Well, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I uh, heart uh, the website's pretty simple. It's hart.ubc.ca. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not the artist formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much longer I will be there. Uh, so those are the main ways to get in touch with me are through um, LinkedIn and through the Heart Project. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way, Michael. I would love it to be out of business. I would love to move on to a fourth career where I am a full-time grandma or I am, um, I wrote another book this year, uh, a history book, uh, Clara at the Door with a Revolver that did quite well. It was shortlisted for the Toronto Book Awards, etc. cetera. I, I would love to um, move on to a fourth career because housing solved, but until then I'm around. That's fantastic. And we are grateful that you are. Please keep doing the great work that you're doing. You are not hard. I said, mentioned it before to listeners. She's not hard to find, really. Like, it, they're, usually when they're looking for comment on some type of housing policy or something that's come out, uh, Carol. I'm on speed dial. So, <laughs> you'll see it. And it's good because it's good comment. It's, it's okay. You know, you celebrate the wins, but you say, you, you know, here's a, a, perhaps also another path to. Uh, thank you so much for your time today and for doing this twice. I think we nailed it the second time. You know, <laughs> we nailed the first time too, but it was great, even more so the second time. I appreciate all you do. Uh, and we'll see you next time on the way home. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.